Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be finishing up this chapter uh, today. Now, we've been on this topic of leadership, and so each of the sermons from this chapter have been focused on leadership specifically, on the idea of leadership. Now, I prefaced this before. Uh, I have a perspective, and I think the Bible paints this perspective too, that there, there exists kind of a spectrum of leadership in God's perspective. And you enter into that path, and you enter into that spectrum, the moment that you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have been you have been christened, for lack of a better word, into leadership. Now, your leadership influence might start small, okay? It might be modest, but as time moves forward, God is calling you into deeper and deeper leadership in ministry, and you need to have that foresight. You need to have that insight. You need to be prepared for it. You need to see yourself as a leader, even now. And so you say to yourself, well, I just I attend a Bible study. It's kind of new to me. I just signed up for discipleship. That's new to me. Maybe you just accepted uh, Christ as your Savior, just recently maybe. We've got, in, in this ministry alone, I've heard of almost, I, I believe it's 30 testimonies of salvation over the last two months. Isn't that nuts? So, you know, that's not accurate numbers because I, I don't have like an Excel spreadsheet or anything. But, but I, I've heard the testimonies as, they, as they've come in over the last couple months, and it's about 30 people in your lives, and some of you are in this room, uh, that have come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And at that moment, you need to recognize that God is calling you to leadership. That's what discipleship is all about. It's about growing you into your leadership responsibilities. Now, in this chapter, we've talked about a few things, okay? Uh, when we first started, we addressed this idea that a biblical leadership is a stewardship leadership, a stewardship leadership, which is a biblical word for management, oversight. A stewardship, in this case, where truth is the priority. Okay, so this is the thing, you know, at your workplace, you might manage things, right? You might manage things. You might be responsible for cleaning this thing or putting these things away or making these things over here get sold or, or make sure that these things get into the right file in the right place or, or whatever it might be. But in the stewardship of Christianity, we are responsible for managing ideas and concepts that are derived from God's word, all right? It's a, it's a, it's a conceptual management. And all of the concepts by which we live come from this book. And so learning this book is our top priority, now, so many churches today have their priorities wrong, all right? We might sense that, right, being in America and seeing the state of Christianity. You might sense that, but, but it's an issue of priority. The issue isn't that there's just problems. That there, the, the problems themselves are, are an issue of priority. So a lot of churches are doing everything but steward truth. They're stewarding their service experiences, on Sunday morning, they're, they're stewarding the entertainment value of what they do. They're, they're stewarding their, their, their perception within the community in which they serve, right? They're real concerned about what people think about them. They're stewarding, you know, people's well-being in their church. They're, they're wanting to make sure that everyone's happy all the time, that the coffee is hot, that the donuts are ready. 
that the lights, the lights in the, the worship set are flashing and that the smoke machine's working and that the pastor is on his A game, right? I heard recently about a pastor was talking about um, what he does pre-service to prepare for his, his worship service. This is a megachurch pastor. And one of the things in the list of his preparation that he does is he, he actually works out for 45 minutes to make sure that he has a pump going on, right? That his... I'm not lying to you, y'all. This is, this is how it is, okay? Right? Anymore, a, pa- a, a pastor has to have their, their J's fresh and their pump on. Their biceps have to be m- at maximum capacity before they step into the pulpit. But why? Why is that? Why is that what Christianity looks like now? Well, it's because the priorities are wrong. The priorities are wrong. When anything takes priority over truth, the foundation of our faith will crumble and our mission perspective will fall apart. If the management of truth, if the priority of truth and doctrine is not right, if it's not the first priority, everything else will fall apart. It has to be a number one. And so a leadership that isn't doctrinal is a leadership that's desolate. And we've got to remember that. So if you want to be a leader, if you're striving towards leadership and to have investment in people's lives, then you need to take the word of God seriously. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 says, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Every one of you that finds themselves in ministry, it's time that you see yourself as a leader and start studying God's word that way. We strive to have a leadership that deals in truth claims. That's what we need to be about. And one of the things that I love about being a pastor, and, and, and I think the call on my life is to develop leaders. And you'll see that in today's sermon a little bit, but, but my life's devotion is to make sure that you guys have these things in your life, that these principles are true of you. And that's why I take LFBI so seriously. That's why I want you to take Discipleship One so seriously. It's because I need to know that you understand God's word and that you can apply it to your life. The next thing that we looked at was this idea that a biblical leadership is a serving leadership. It's a serving leadership. It's sacrifice as a priority. Laying down your life to serve Christ and his people. A biblical leadership is a leadership that chooses the back seat. This is funny watching the pastors do this. When we go to lunch, I, make sure, I, I always make sure to sit back middle right? It's become kind of a game. Now, first of all, y'all know Kenny Morgan isn't sitting back middle. His body just can't fit, all right? But watching the pastors try to take the back seat is is a funny thing. Why? Because they want to, even if it's in a silly and a small way, they want to put themselves in a position of sacrifice. They don't want to be first. A biblical leadership is a leadership that's willing to defer their rights, is willing to take out the trash and to clean up, is prepared to give away their time and energy so that others might have life. And that's the leadership that we're teaching here at Midtown Baptist Temple. That's the leadership that I want to see take place in Kaya. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 4.10, we are fools for Christ's sake. We are weak. We are despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted And have no certain dwelling place and labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world. 
and are the off-scouring of all things unto this day. Growing leaders. It's not leadership unless it's serving leadership. Do you understand? It's not leadership unless it's serving leadership. Leadership is not a performance piece. It's not an opportunity to be in front of people. It's not an opportunity to be affirmed and patted on the back. It is none of those things in this place. Now, somewhere else in the world, in other churches, maybe. But as it concerns our ministry and our mission, leadership is about serving. We strive to have a leadership that dies to self for the sake of Christ and others. Now, today we're going to discuss a third leadership quality, and that's a biblical leadership that is a stirring leadership. A stirring leadership. And by stirring, what I mean, it's a leadership that provokes people. It impassions people. It purposes people. It affects and impacts people that it comes in contact with. It's a type of leadership that rubs off on other people and causes them to want to go deeper with Christ all the time. And every encounter that we have with one another, it it should push us, all of us, should push us forward to want, to, 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 want to, to know him more, to be more intimate with Christ, to be more serious about our faith, to be more devoted to the work. And when people come in contact with us, we ought to be stirring people to know Christ better. And that's what we're going to see modeled here as we finish out chapter four. Chapter four. Now, here's the questions that we need to ask ourselves. And I think I changed it from my notes. Yeah, here we go. Who are my leaders in the faith? That's the first question that we need to ask ourselves. Who are my leaders in the faith? And all of us should be able to recognize who those people are. Maybe they're your discipler, the person that's pouring into you one-on-one in a mentorship relationship. Maybe it's those people who lead you in Bible study. They're your leaders. Maybe it's the pastors of this church, right? You have leaders in your life, and you ought to be able to recognize them. Now, that's not good enough. Let's not stop there. Once you recognize them, you have to ask yourself the question, how faithful am I in following their leadership? Now, we know they're not God, right? And that all leadership is delegated leadership. God is our ultimate authority, and and at the end of the day, we look to him for the authority, but we have to recognize that God did the work of delegating. He put people in your life that you ought to recognize as authority figures And you need to be willing to submit yourself to them, to follow them as they follow Christ. And so so the next question is, am I willing to do that? Am I faithful to that? So this is what we're going to be considering today as we look at God's word. Shall we pray? We've already come a long ways. That was a long introduction. Okay? Let's be focused. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we get into the remainder of this chapter. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. And you are uh, good. You are... um, just looking at, at what we looked at today in main service, uh, you are very, very big. And uh, the wonderful thing about your bigness is that, is that as abstract as you can be and, and as, as broad and as expansive and, and, and hard to grasp as you can be, you are also very close and you also make yourself very plain. And you also give us the ability to look, you, to look you in the face and to know your character through your word. And you show us with, with great simplicity what it means to follow you, to be your friend, to love you. 
and what it means to be a leader. You show us. You take us by the hand. And so as big and as terrible and as great and as mighty and majestic as you are, Lord, you are also our friend. And you are, you are also faithful to us. And you promise to walk with us daily as long as we're willing to mortify our flesh and our deeds, you will walk with us in spirit. And so, God, we're thankful for that. And so, Lord, help us today. Help us to see ourselves in this sermon and to draw closer to you through leadership. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read. Get a drink of water first. All right. I write not these things to shame you. Now, if you remember, things have been kind of rough for the, for the Corinthians in this passage thus far, right? Paul is not pulling any punches. Remember all that sarcastic dialogue from the last time we were together? He was being kind of sharp with them. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you, for though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers, For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel, and wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son, and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some of you are puffed up, as though I would not come to you. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will, and will know, not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? Now, we're going to be talking here about leadership that nurtures. And this had me thinking a lot about teaching. Now, I had a philosophy, a a philosophical approach that I took when I taught high school. I did that for 10 years. And when I got into it, from the very beginning, I had a perspective that I held to. Okay, and it guided me in my approach to teaching young people. And that was this. Love welcomes correction. Love welcomes correction. I knew that if I loved my students passionately, befriended them, and had their trust, that when it came time to set the bar, the bar high, to set the expectations high, and to say hard things, I would have space in their life to do it. It would be invited. They would be ready for it. They could handle it because they knew that I loved them. At some point, someone referred to me as a a warm demander. I don't remember who called me that. But but, But that made sense. Like, I get that. Like, I wanted to be a warm demander, someone who was warm and loving and affectionate, that was constantly building trust. So so that they knew that. They had my ear at all times. That kind of person has the ability to say very hard things. The most effective, or the more effective my love became, the more effective, more effective my instruction became in their life. And that was the approach that I took. Now, up to this point in the chapter, we find that Paul is in critique mode. Okay, he's being difficult. He's saying hard things. He's calling out the Corinthians for their selfish thinking and the division that they had caused by preferring some teachers over other teachers. So there have been some tough words here. But we also find Paul calling them to remember, that the love, uh, remember the love that he had poured out on them. 
It wasn't that long ago that he was with them and he was pouring out face-to-face, pouring out love into their lives. He cared for them and, and they knew that, but he had to remind them of that. And so here's our first key point. A stirring love justifies a stirring rebuke. A stirring love, an affectionate love, a love that stirs people towards love is the type of love that stirs up rebuke. And ministry is like this, at least the way that we do ministry here. Okay, the way Bible study works and the way discipleship works here, people get up in your life. And maybe if you came from a bigger church where there was more lights and flash and performance, you're not used to that. But here in Kaya, we are up in each other's lives. And the way that it should work is that we're building trust with one another by listening to each other, by caring about one another, by, willing, by, by, by being willing to enter into and empathize with one another. We establish a love that also invites a form of rebuke and correction that is necessary for everyone's growth. That's the kind of ministry that we should have. Verse 14 says, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. In other words, it was never Paul's objective to pour out shame on people. Right? His, his objective, his desire, was not to make people feel small and, not, and, and, and to not make people feel like they were lesser than. He simply wanted to warn them. And I think that he'd earned that. I think that he'd earned that in, our, in, in their lives. He refers to them as beloved sons. And this, this idea of them being his beloved sons is a way of him saying or declaring his affection towards them. I love that ring. That's that, that ring right there, is my, that's my default ring too. So respect. But, but this idea that they're his beloved sons, that was because he spent a year and a half with them discipling them. Giving them everything he caught. Now, 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 Paul, there was a high demand on Paul's attention. He had followers all over, all over Asia, Asia Minor, everywhere. He had churches that he was attending to. A lot of the churches that he established, he would spend weeks, months there, but very rarely years. Paul spent a year and a half with the Corinthians. He gave a lot of time and energy and love with, to them, He knew what it was like to stoop down with them in prayer and to cry with them. And he knew what it was like to stand with them and rejoice. He lived all those experiences with them. They knew him and he knew them. He loved them and they were his beloved sons. Now this word beloved shows up in every letter of the New Testament. Besides Galatians, Titus, and and all of the letters of John. So the Gospel of John and John, 1 John, 2 and 3 John, you don't see the word beloved in any of those books. Now, interestingly enough, in the letters of John, you see the word love more than anywhere else in the New Testament. So that's an interesting study. I'll leave that to you. But I, but I think John's attention was on what it looks like for believers to pour out love. And in all the other New Testament letters, when the word beloved shows up, it, it's generally to remind us that we are beloved or loved by Christ, that love has been poured out on us, that that we are his affectionate people, that Jesus Christ looks upon us with favor, that he loves us and adores us, and we have to be reminded of that time and time again. We see the word beloved show up a lot in the Song of Solomon. 
in the way that Solomon talks about his, his lovely wife, his beloved. That word shows up a lot there. It's a term that God uses to describe Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ was the beloved of the Father. And it's a word that the apostles use to describe the followers of Christ whom they've given their lives to in ministry. They were the beloved of Christ, but also the beloved of the apostles. They had been loved. The term beloved is not just a term of endearment. Listen, it's a term of passion. It's a term of passion. Paul is anything but dispassionate. He is completely and unabashedly biased towards the Corinthians. They are his beloved sons and daughters. He cares for them. And so this leads to the next key point. Leaders are stirred to compassion for those that they serve. A leader should never serve begrudgingly or serve because they have to. Now, I know that sometimes we're tempted that direction. We wake up in the morning on a Sunday. We're in our flesh. It's rainy out. We come to church. We've got to get here in time for some sort of ministry thing that we're responsible for. Maybe we're on the hospitality team. Maybe we're serving in kid town or whatever it is that we may do. Sometimes we can be tempted to do those things begrudgingly as though we're serving some sort of abstract thing, as though this is only about duty, duty to God. I'm showing up. And that's what we, sometimes we confuse ministry as that. Sometimes, sometimes serving the Lord is hard because we're carnal in the way that we think. But that's not actually what's cultivated in ministry as God has set it up. When we're with each other, when we're, when we're serving together, when we're around each other, when we're worshiping together, when we're, when we're setting up chairs together, when we're making the coffee, bringing it down the street, when we're in Bible study together, when we're around one another, when we're being provoked in the word, what naturally is supposed to happen is that affection and passion should build towards each other. Now, I know for some of us, I, I, I know that some of you think about church and it's uncomfortable to be here because you're used to relationships with people being a little bit more uh, neutral, a little bit more, uh, I don't know, passive. So the people that you work with or even the way that you engage with your family, it's more of a passive engagement. Lots of smiles, lots of handshakes, lots of friendly, friendly behavior. But the moment that you enter into a church that's like a family, it can be very, very uncomfortable. Right? The idea of church that's like family, that can be an uncomfortable thing, especially for those of you who've had bad experiences in your own family. That when you come here and people are in your business and they want to know about you and they want to hug you and, and they want to serve you, and they, that naturally, maybe in the beginning, is kind of grating. And you don't know what to do with it. You don't know how to handle that. And it can be uncomfortable. Listen to me. God has built something into us through his spirit that we can't attain through works or good effort. We can't make ourselves love one another. We can't just wish good thoughts and hope over time that we learn how to love. Listen, God has built into us love. And he's connected his body in such a way that the natural outpouring ought to be love. We should be knit together. And as leaders, we should be uh, 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 stirred towards compassion that we might serve one another out of love, not duty. 
Compassion is a feeling of longing for those who you love. It's exactly what Paul had for the church in Corinth. And it's a word that I think best describes what we ought to feel for one another. The word compassion is is found in relation to Christ more than any other context in Scripture. So when we look up the word and we we study the word compassion, we find it more often used in in, in context of the Gospels and the context of Christ than any other place. Now, one of my favorite places is Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus is standing and he's looking out over the city. And it says this, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of, of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But listen, when he stands and he looks out upon these people and he's considering them, listen to what happens. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Now I always love reading this because it reminds me of just how much Jesus loved those who were scattered. I mean, many of you are scattered. Many of you don't know what it's like to be a part of Christ's mission and his purpose. You don't know that. You don't know what it's like to be a part of a church, not a healthy church. But there are people that are scattered, these cars that are driving past, these are people that are scattered. And when Christ saw people like that, he was moved to, he was stirred to compassion. And he wanted to draw them in because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. They had no guide. They had nothing to follow. They didn't know the words of God. They didn't know what it meant to follow hard after something that's greater than them. They didn't know that. And so he was moved to compassion. Now, I want, I want to point out something that maybe you haven't seen. Is that when Christ goes into this part about the harvest being plenteous, but the laborers are few, I want you to understand That the laborers that he's looking for are laborers that are likewise stirred to compassion. The laborers that he desires is a people. They're not just willing to go into the field and do a work out of duty. He is looking for a people that are also stirred to compassion. Because when they look at people, they don't see people, they see souls. They see something much greater than just flesh and bones and transactions to be made. He wants people that are going to labor in his field out of compassion for the people that are scattered. Growing leaders, do you have a stirring in your heart towards the people that you serve? And if you do, then you will have the heart of a parent. If, if, you, if you do, you'll have the heart of a parent. Verse 14 says this, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. He calls them sons. Now listen, for though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel, wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. And I believe this to be an, an incredible, incredibly powerful statement. It's one of my very favorite statements as a pastor in all of scripture. 
So but Paul is again drawing a contrast between two things. Now he's been doing that throughout the chapter. Remember that? The whole business about being despised, being weak. You're, you're strong, but I'm weak, right? So he's, he's doing all these parallels to draw contrast between two concepts, two ideas. And he's doing that here again. And he, he's drawing a contrast between all of these instructors versus the few fathers that you actually have in the faith. So he's leaving the Corinthians to decide which one they prefer. Which one do you prefer? 10,000 instructors or a few fathers? And my question to you is the exact same. Which do you prefer? 10,000 instructors or a few fathers or mothers that love you and adore you and have an affection for you? Maybe they're not so perfect and maybe they're not everything that you imagine them to be, but you're your parents. They're your parents in the faith. No one picks their parents, right? Some of, us, some of us wish we could have picked our parents. But that's the beauty of birth, right? God selected your parents for you. God gave you parents, whether they're great parents or not. They're your parents. That's the way it works. And the same thing is true in the faith. God brings these people into your life. And their responsibility is to steward you. We call them around here, we call them disciples, we call them pastors, we call them elders, we call them leaders, we call them, we call them friends. And sometimes those relationships are difficult, sometimes they're hard, but they're what God gave you. So Paul is describing here the great difference between the plentitude of professors, commentators, lecturers, talking heads that would have drawn the attention of the Corinthians and tickled their ears. Now, we've got to remember the context of Corinth. The context of Corinth is this, that these people in Corinth that attend this church were previously worshipers of many false gods, right? And in Corinth, there was a culture of seeking out the philosophers and the pagan leaders that you wanted to follow. And so it was a city where there was thousands, literally thousands of people that were eloquent in speech, they were knowledgeable on a topic, and they professed to some, have some sort of hidden knowledge that if you were willing to follow them and let them be your guru, for a small fee... You could follow them around and have their teaching and have access to their hidden truth. That's the culture that the Corinthians were coming out of. And that's the culture that they brought into the church. And that's the culture that Paul's trying to correct here. And he uses the number 10,000 for effect. That's a big number, isn't it? But it's more than that. The use of the word 10,000 is more than that. It's more than just a number to... to, to kind of dramatize the number of Gnostic philosophers and mystics that would have been in Corinth. It has more meaning than that in Scripture. It wasn't a random number. 10,000 in Scripture is almost always a number used to describe insufficiency. Insufficiency. It's almost always representative of the idea that few with God is better than many in the world. Few and small in the camp of God is much, much better than many, many and mighty in the world. So 10,000 is a reference 
to several different places, one of which is Leviticus 26, 8, where it says this. So God's making a promise to the nation of Israel. We're going to do a quick word study here, or a phrase study, okay? It says this, 26, 7. And ye shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. It's a promise he's making to Israel. And five of you shall chase an hundred. Can you imagine that? I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in a fist fight before. But one-on-one is sufficient for me. Two-on-one is trouble. But five against a hundred? Ain't no chance in your flesh, right? Ain't no chance. You're done. But with God, five can take on a hundred. And a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. And your enemies shall, shall fall before you by the sword. For I will have respect unto you and make you fruitful and multiply you and establish my covenant with you. So God's saying a hundred people can take on 10,000 in his economy. In those that he's deemed his own. In those that he has a covenant with. By the way, he has a covenant with you. Believer, he has a covenant with you. Let's look at, let's look at Judges 1, 4. And this is God ins- instructing Judah to go to battle against the Canaanites. And this is what he says. Or, or this, he tells them that they should, and this is what they do. And Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they slew of them in Bezek 10,000 men. 10,000 men. Again, we find this number... Uh, referring to Ehud leading Israel into battle. Judges 3.29 says, And they slew of Moab at that time about 10,000 men all, all lusty and all men of valor. And they escaped not a man. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest fourscore years. And so what we see here in the Old Testament oftentimes is God using a very small number, a few people, a small people, a weak people, to go into battle against a mighty people. And then defeat them. Why? Because it was never about the strength of one person's arm. It's always about our association with God. So check this out. Christ tells about the power of love and forgiveness using this this number. Okay, look at what it says. He's telling a, a story here, a parable And he says in verse 24, Matthew 18, And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. And so there's this this Lord, this this mighty man, okay, who is owed 10,000 talents. And he's got this guy that doesn't have the money to pay him, this servant that doesn't have the money to pay him. Verse 25 But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So so this man owes him 10,000 talents. He can't pay it. The consequence of which would be that him and his family be sold into slavery. Sold into indentured slavery. It was the best he could do. Sell them off, cut the losses. But listen to what it says. The servant therefore fell down and worshiped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. So I want you to understand here, this man does not have anything to pay. 
But does it concern this Lord? His humility and brokenness and his apologetic posture was more than enough to cover the price. Do you see how powerful that is? You have nothing to offer God. You understand that, right? You have nothing to offer him. And you owe him so much. But it's such a little thing to repent of your sin. It's such a little thing to lower yourself and ask for forgiveness of the creator of the universe. It's such a small thing to bow before him. And guess what? When he does, when you do, his compassion covers it all. His compassion towards you covers it all. Powerful. Or how about when Paul addresses the power of the intelligible word over the foreign languages in the worship services? So we recognize during this time frame that there would have been people that had the gift to speak miraculously in foreign tongues. Okay? And so say that there was a purpose in the worship service. God would deem it a purpose for someone to speak in what they refer to as tongues. That person would miraculously speak in a language that was necessary for a person to hear. And there would be a translator there often to translate, right? That's the way God intended it to work. We're going to learn more about that here in, in the, letter to first, uh, the letter to the Corinthians we call 1 Corinthians. But Paul's talking about this subject, and he says in verse 19, Yet in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding, that by my voice I might teach others also. So five words with understanding in an, in, an intelligible language is greater than 10,000 words in an unknown language. Okay, so here's the whole point. Here's the whole point. In Corinth, they had come to believe that more voices, more content was better. That it was their responsibility as believers to belly up at the buffet of spiritual teachers. That the more that they could receive and the more gurus that they had and the more people that they could turn to, the better off they are. And that's just not true. That's not the way God works. That's not the way God works. And in the church today, there really is no difference to that that we see in Corinth. There's really no difference in the landscape of Christianity today than what we see right here in Corinth, where you can feed from the hand of a teacher at any given moment. You just have to find the podcast that you, that you subscribe, subscribe to. You just got to find the right YouTube channel. You just got to visit another church. And this is the way we live from day to day. Many, many Christians don't even know how to open their word. But they're constantly looking for another teacher. This is exactly why people church hop. They're unsettled to, 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 to submit and to follow after one pastor or one church. So they hang out one place for about a month until they're tired of that. It's not what they thought it would be. Maybe if you're lucky, you'll get them for six months or a year, and then they're on to the next church looking for the next thing, bouncing around, picking at the buffet of, of, of all of the different teachers. Maybe they're looking for a better worship service where the music is more refined, where the slideshows are always correct <laughs> during the worship set. 
What incentive does any person in our culture today have to, to, to commit to one place, to be single-minded? What incentive do people have? They don't have any. They can't see it. They'd rather have 10,000 teachers. They'd rather have, you know, listen to me. I want you to understand something. I will ne- as weepy as I get, I will never be as sensitive and as weepy as John Piper. That dude cries all the time. And if you're into that, man, there, he's there for you. Just <laughs> desiring God. Just, fo- just follow everything he has to say. Now, you're going to get screwed up, but, you know, I like his teaching. You know, I'll, I'll never be as smart. I will never be as intelligent. My IQ will never match Tim Keller's. John MacArthur's. I'm just, I'll never be that guy. I'll never be that smart. I'll never be as angry as Paul Washer, James White. I'll never be that angry. If you're looking for angry guys, those are the ones you want to find because they're pissed about something every other week. They got... Now, forget the fact that they have heretical teachings. What, what people are looking for is 10,000 professors. And they're willing to trade that. They're willing to, 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 to trade away their fathers and mothers in the faith for that. And so that's our next key point, is that we ought to prefer our parents in the faith over the professors. Those men, those gurus, they'll never activate your faith. They'll never give you a hug. They'll never know your name. They'll never greet you on a Sunday morning and they'll never sit with you through Bible study. And when you have pain or loss, you have a a family member's passed away unexpectedly or a crisis in your family, they're not gonna sit down and weep with you. They might tickle your ears for a season, but they're not your parents. They're They're not your fathers and mothers in the faith. The passionate investment of a father is greater than the persuasive intelligence of many instructors. You know, when you're a kid, it's common for you to be obsessed with your parents. My kids are at that stage right now in their life. They love me. They think, they think I'm the best. But you know how it goes. You know, you hit middle school, you get into high school, and suddenly that, that perspective shifts, right? And you start looking at your parents different. You can point out their flaws. You can see their weaknesses. And instead of being able to forgive that, in the weakness of a, of a, a preteen, Uh, often what they do is they turn that into anger or resentment and then they begin to kind of distance themselves from the people that they were once obsessed with and loved so much. They kind of begin to resent them and then they turn to other things, other, other mentors, other cultural icons, other voices that are out there. Maybe it's their favorite musician. I mean, you know, the, for, for some of you, the very first, like your first guru outside of your parents was like some lame musician, Right? It's probably Taylor Swift for like half this room. (laughs) Okay? You know Taylor Swift was never country. You know that, right? Never was. She didn't leave country. She was never country to begin with. That that ain't country music. Okay. Tammy Wynette. That's country music. Yeah, you don't know. It's okay. Spotify it later. Um, 
But see, that's what happens in the church too. See, in the church, what happens is we get tired or we, recognize, we begin to recognize there's weaknesses. There's weaknesses with Brandon. Of course there is. Come on. I could have told you that on day one. Probably did tell you that on day one. There's nothing perfect about any of this. You're going to see the flaws. We're not going to be as shiny as the guys that you listen to online. There are, other past- there are other pastors and there are other preachers in the city with bigger churches and a lot more to offer and a lot more bells and whistles. And it's easy. It's easy to grow resentful. It's easy to grow bitter. It's easy to turn your eyes another direction. That's cool. That's cool. I get it. I, I get it. I get it how it works being an adolescent moving into adulthood. But you have few fathers in the faith. And the people that invited you to this church and the people that love you in your Bible study and the people that are discipling you and investing you, the people that led you to Christ, I'll never forget, man. There was a guy, there's a guy that I love so deeply that was a part of this church, the, the very early years of this church. And him and his family, they got saved coming to Midtown. This is, this is where they were born into Christ. This is where they were begotten. And there was something shinier down the street. They had friends there. And so they left to go to be with their friends. And there was, you know, it was a more polished it was more polished product. It killed me. It killed a lot of people in this church because we saw him as our brother in Christ. We saw that family as our, as our, as our begotten, as our children, as, as a part of this family. And I can tell you today, I'm pretty confident. I'm pretty confident that they're not going anywhere. They're not even in church. I'm just saying that, I'm saying that as a warning because if you, if you lose your perspective on the, on the fathers and the mothers that God has brought into your life, if you lose perspective of who really loves you, who really loves you, it's easy to trade up. It's easy to walk away. And isn't that what our culture is all about? If it's all about you, if it's all about what you desire and what you want, it's really easy to just say, well, And I want you to think about that principally as it concerns your physical parents too. I want you to understand that that works in the physical realm as well. Some of us, we think we know better than our parents. And maybe you do. But you honor them as your parents. And with me, there might be things that you know better than me. I'm not, a, I'm not afraid to admit that. But I've given my whole life for you. And there are other people in this room that have done the exact same. You ought to prefer your parents in the faith to the professors. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Whoever is willing to make the deepest biblical investment in your soul, whoever whoever it is that's discipling you, leading you with love, that's your father and that's your mother. Don't despise them, prefer them. Now, Now let's look at this next thing. We saw a leadership that 
nurtures, but now we need to see a leadership that provides. Good parents nurture, but they also provide for their children. They look out for them when they're in trouble. They provide for their needs, even when it's difficult to do. Parents take on two jobs, right? Parents make all kinds of sacrifices. Do you know that a parent at my age, that I give up all of my, like, social identity? Like, I have no friends. I don't kick it, okay? I don't hang out on the weekend. You know what I'm doing? I'm going to soccer practice and basketball games. That's what I do. Why? Because I make provision for my kids. I want them to have what they need. And even the things that they want. I make that sacrifice. That's what parents do. And in this case, Paul was willing to send his very best, his very best, Timotheus, away from the work that he was doing. You guys know how important Timotheus is to the, to the work of Christian ministry in the world at this given moment in time? Tim, Timothy was a big deal in his own right. And he, he was a son to Paul. And so what Paul's about to do is he's about to dispatch Timothy away from what he was doing to send, them, to send him to Corinth that he might help them in their discipleship. That's a pretty big deal. Look at verse 16. Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me for this cause, for this reason, because I want you to be a follower of me as I follow Christ, I'm gonna send you Timothy. I have, have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is also my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. So Paul's busy doing missions work and he can't get away. He can't tear himself away from the thing that he's supposed to be doing at that given moment. So he sends Timothy, which, listen to me, is not second best. Paul is sending the very best. Why? Because he's looking at Corinth and he's assessing that there's a great need there. He's seeing that things aren't right in the church in Corinth. And it's not okay for them to just figure it out on their own. He's going to send his beloved son to his beloved sons. Why? So they might be put in remembrance of who Jesus Christ is and what the ministry is supposed to look like. That's a big deal. That's a big deal for Paul. And he wants them to see it for the big deal that it is. So Timothy wasn't with Paul originally when he visited Corinth. Remember when we saw Paul go to Corinth? Timothy was serving in Macedonia. He had another work. So they never met Timothy before. They don't know him. But they knew Timothy. They knew that name. They knew his reputation. And the very sight of Timothy would have reminded them of Paul. They would have seen Timothy, and they would have seen Paul. When people see Shepherd, they see me. They see Eva. When they see his face, when they see our kids, oh, those are Briscoes. They can see our genetic residue on our children. The same thing is true in the faith. I know, I know that Alex and Nick and Kyle and Jake and Lon and Larry, these men look like they look like me. They look like Andrew Ong. They look like Sam Miles. They, they sound like Kenny Morgan. I mean, did you guys not watch Jason last Tuesday? <laughs> I 
right? All of the same gestures. Why? Why? Because Kenny Morgan is his father in the faith. And there are women in this ministry, they look like Eva, they look like Jacqueline, they look like Havilah, they look like Becca, and on and on and on. They, because, because you've made an investment. And every one of us has been impacted by our fathers and our mothers in the faith and we are, we are being dispatched to have that same influence and that same impact on the next generation. That's who we are. Timothy wasn't there to lord over them. Let's get that right too. He wasn't going there to lord over them, set them right, let me tell you a thing or two. That's not what he was going there to do. He was going there to love them and to remind them of the things that they'd been taught. Isn't that our responsibility? We're not here to lord over God's people. We're not here to be the bosses over you. I'm not your boss. I don't wanna be your boss. I wanna be your friend. I wanna be, be a father. But listen to me. My responsibility is to remind you of the things that Christ has shown me. And it's your responsibility to do that likewise. That's what we do. So he wasn't there to lord over them, but to remind them of what Paul had taught them, of the doctrines of the faith. And what good Christian conduct looked like, he was there to be a father to them in Paul's absence. Now we've, we've got this model in our ministry too. That's what the Bible study thing is about. Now, I know that as the ministry grows, people would, would like to have more access to me. Everybody would like to have more access to Sam for sure, right? Because, because people like to know their pastors really well. They, the idea of being intimate friends with your pastor, I want, I've always wanted that too, Right? Now, I'm fortunate enough to be on staff, and I finally get to be around Sam as much as I wanted to. I'm sure he's sick of me. <laughs> but I've always ever just wanted to be around Sam and around Kenny and around those guys because they're my fathers in the faith. I've always wanted that. But you don't always get that. And so this is why we have Bible studies in this ministry. I pour my life. You guys don't even really fully understand the capacity of what I'm talking about. I pour my life into the leaders that have influence in your life. And when they're with you, you're with me in a spiritual sense. And so you need, to, you need to utilize that for what it is. You need to see that for what it is. And you need to get everything you can out of your disciples and out of your Bible study leaders that you can because they're there for you. It's that whole, you know, there's a whole lot of bread but not a lot of butter thing that Sam always talks about. Right? It's a whole lot of bread, you know, but not a lot of butter to go around. But if we multiply the butter... Right? Just imagine, remember Missouri Town? There's that lady that was churning butter. Right? You know what I'm talking about? If you haven't been to Missouri Town, you're missing out. Okay? International students. Have someone take you to Missouri Town. Did y'all know that Mitch Dobson was a character actor at Missouri Town? With like a coonskin cap on, a musket, some overalls. That whole bit. He played that bit in Missouri Town when he was in high school. Now, Missouri Town is like old-fashioned. It's like supposed to be what Missouri would have looked like 150 years ago. But at these kinds of places, there's always a woman churning butter. Isn't Come churn the butter, right? And little kids are like, I don't want to churn the butter. All right, everybody, take your turn churning the butter. Listen, 
I am that old lady. I'm churning the butter. I'm trying to produce more butter because there's a lot of bread and there's a lot of work to be done. Who are your leaders? Who are you following in leadership? In, in leadership? Who's, who's ahead of you? Follow behind. Key point. We must be willing to receive the leadership, uh, the leadership investment of those that God sends to us. We must be willing to receive those leaders. Some of us aren't willing. Some of us are too proud. Some of us have arrogance that gets in the way. You know, Sam, you know, I don't have time to get into it, but Sam talked about messengers today, right? And in a very real sense, Timothy was a messenger of Paul, the way the angel of the Lord was a messenger of God the Father. The way angels are, when we see them in Scripture, are messengers of, of, of God. He was a messenger. He was an ambassador. Paul absolutely believed that Timothy, as his beloved son, was every bit as valuable as him going in person. You know, in Mark chapter 12, there's this story. It's, it's a grievous story that Jesus tells about a certain man who had land that he loaned to a farmer. And he loaned this, this land to him. And at the end of the harvest season is when you pay the guy you're leasing from. Okay, you bring the harvest in, you make a little bit of money, and now you pay back the, the guy that you're leasing the land from. And so this certain man who owned the land went to this farmer to collect the wages that he owed him. And when the, when the servants went to this guy's house, they whomped on him. You guys know that term? He got a, caught a beat down. The servant caught a beat down. So he showed up. The ambassador shows up. And, and the farmers and his sons beat this dude up and send him back. And so he sends another servant and another. He kills a servant. Okay, eventually the, the farmer, the farmer's like, man, if they're not going listen, to listen to my servants, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send my son. Because certainly, certainly this guy is going to respect the name and the authority of my very son. So he sends his son, and guess what they do? They beat him to death. They kill him. They kill the messenger. They kill the ambassador. Now, we recognize that this is a picture type of the prophets that came before the Messiah, right? Every servant that was sent, the nation of Israel denied those servants, even killing them, killing the prophets, treating them like trash, those were ambassadors of God, of the living God. And eventually, God sent his own son, and guess what we did to him? Yeah. So it's a picture type there, but listen to me. In principle, it applies here too. God has sent ambassadors into your life. Why are you rejecting them? Why do you think you know a better way? Why not receive what people that love you are pouring into you? Pride. Delegated authority, it may be a lesser authority, but it is an authority nonetheless. We've got to respect it. We've got to love it. We've got to yield to it. It's a privilege to have. There's a lot of aimless Christians out there. It's pretty awesome that you have people in your life that love you. No one has been sent to lord over you. All of these people that are leaders in our ministry have been sent to love you. Now, we're going to end this chapter. I want to point something out to you. There's a bigger issue in Corinth that's going on that Paul's not addressed yet. And it's going to be pretty gross, okay? It's pretty gross. It's pretty vile. We'll get to that in the next chapter. But there's a bigger issue at hand that needs to be addressed. And Timothy's going there to help them address it, right? Like, we're going to get this fixed because this ain't right, okay? We'll get to that. But I want you to see 
I want you to see that, that in that context, what Paul's about to say here is really, really important. So now we have a leadership that, that nurtures and, and a leadership that provides, that provides your spiritual nourishment, provides people to help you in that work. But now we have a leadership that corrects. And that's what we need too. We need a leadership that's willing to correct. Verse 18, now some are puffed up. And now we remember we learned that the word puffed up means arrogant. They're wise in their own conceits. Now some are puffed up as though I would not come. In other words, they're proud and they're arrogant and they're convinced that Paul won't even come. He's not even going to show up. You know, it's that cynical way of thinking that, that people who have pride have, that critical way of thinking, oh, Paul won't come. He's not even going to be bothered with us. We're not even important for him. Okay? He says, now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you, but I will come shortly. If the Lord will, right? Which is what, you know, old people say this, Lord willing, you know. <laughs> we'll do that tomorrow, Lord willing, because pe- people need to understand that God only gives us this moment. Okay, so any promise that you make, it's conjecture. Okay, any vow that you make, it's conjecture that Christ won't show up any given moment, right? So he says, Lord willing, and, and you will know, listen, and will know, we will know, we will all know, not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. In other words, when we stand face to face, I will know, not because of your words, but because of your countenance, the spirit, the actual spirit behind your behavior, I will know your motivations. Okay, now, for those of you who are parents, you know about this, okay? I don't trust a single word that, any of my ki- that anything my kids say. It's all suspicious. It's all suspect. Especially when it regards food, who's crying right now and why, whose toy this is, right? They've instantly become just just liars, like the most wicked. Okay, now, but when I look them face to face, oh, I know. I know by their countenance. I could see right through it. You know why? Because I'm their father. And Paul's saying the very same thing. Look, you guys can say a lot. You could talk a lot. But when I come to you and I look you face to face, I'll know your true motivations. I'll know the spirit behind this behavior. What's he say? For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. So here's a key point. Words, words may deceive, but actions and expressions always reveal the heart. They always do. And fathers can always see to the heart of a matter. They always know when something is off. And that's true of the leaders in your life too. When they know you, when you let them know you, they're going to know when stuff's up. They're going to see you walk into a room. They're going to see the expression on your face. They're going to know your countenance. And they're going to say to themselves, something's not right. Okay, now you've got a decision to make in those moments. You've got a decision to make. The question is, what kind of disciple do you want to be? One that hides things? One that's deceptive or one that's open to admonitions, correction, and discipline from a parent? Which kind of disciple do you want to be? Because you could keep fronting, hiding, faking it. People can see through that, by the way. Or you could be someone, a disciple that says, you know what? I'm open to the rebuke. I'm open to the correction. I need accountability. I need to be vulnerable. I need to be open to the investment that someone's willing to pour into me. 
I have to let my stuff be seen. So he says, listen, verse 21, what will ye? He said, what will it be? Corinth, what, what will it be? Shall I come to you with a rod? Which basically means, shall I come to you with discipline? Or in love? And in the spirit of meekness? Will I come to you to discipline you? To set you straight? To confront you? I don't want to do that. Hear me, I don't want to do that. Or will you let me come to you with affection and love? Will you let me pour into your life willingly where we're both on the same page? We're both going the same direction. We both want the right thing. Will you let me show you love? Those are the options. Now listen to me. Listen to me. Those of you who are learning to lead, you need to learn, before you can ever learn to lead, you need to learn to be led. This is what I used to always tell high school kids. They're like, why do I got to take art? You know, why do I got to take art? You know, they had to take an elective. They got to take art. Not all of them want to be artists. Okay, I get that. That's like one in a hundred kids who actually love art. But I, what I always told them is like, you're not, you're not here. You're not here in my class because you're going to be an artist. You're here to learn how to learn. You take this class to learn how to learn, because someday you're going to learn something else. You're going, to, you're going to go to school to be an engineer. But you'll be a better engineer knowing how, to learn, you're knowing how to learn this stuff, how to be a good student. And that's true for you too. Are you a good student? Are you willing to be led? You need to learn how to learn. You need to learn how to lead. And the best way you can do that is to yield to the leadership that's in your life. Does that make sense? Let's do that. Let's do that together. Here's the next key point. It's the final one. Receiving correction is a sign of our maturity and faith in God. You're not submitting because you like it all the time. You're submitting because you believe God and you believe that God's at work, right? Receiving correction is a sign of our maturity and faith in God. Hebrews 12, 7, if ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as his sons. For what son is he who whom the Father chasteneth not. Well, I know. If you're a son that God's not willing to chasten, you're not a son at all. God rebukes and corrects those he loves. He, he corrects those he calls child. And in the body of Christ, the same thing is true. We've got to be willing to take correction. I take correction. I take correction. I'm, I've got to be open to correction. And so do you. This is how it works. Okay, so there's a lot of principles say a lot of key points. Now, I want to point something out to you real quick. This is the idea that, that not all of us are good at leading, okay? And there's areas of our life that we need to work on so that we can be the leader that God wants us to be. And if that's you today, well, then let's take some time to pray about it at the end of service. There's, there's areas in my leadership that are weak, and it has a lot to do with the principles that we talked about today. I need to deal with that. Some of us are only just now discovering that we're supposed to be leaders. Oh, I am a believer. The Holy Spirit lives in me. I'm a disciple of Christ. That means I have some responsibility, even if it's this big, to lead other people. Maybe you're beginning to realize that you're not, you're not so good of a disciple. You resist, you push back, you, you know, you're arrogant at times. And maybe you know you need God to soften your heart a little bit. So the things that he wants to teach you that they'll take. And maybe you need to come forward here as we close in worship 
I'm gonna invite um, Seth up now. Maybe what you need, what you need is to come forward and get that right. Repent so that your heart might be soft. But listen to me. There's some of you that are here today that don't even know Jesus Christ as your savior. And I'm talking about leadership and I'm talking about all these different principles. And you, it's like, man, what is all this Christian stuff he's talking about? And you, st- you don't know you don't know yet what it means to follow Christ. Okay, if you're interested in what it means to follow Jesus Christ as your savior, right? Make him your Lord, make him your master, to follow in his footsteps, to have forgiveness of sin, to have an answer for your sin problem, and to to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're gonna spend eternity with him in heaven. If you need to deal with that, come forward and talk with somebody, okay? All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We're grateful for you. We covered a lot of ground today. Lord, I, I pray that our carnal flesh wouldn't get in the way and that, Lord, we would be able to submit to what we learned today. And if there's anything that we need to deal with, Lord, we would deal with it now. That we wouldn't hold on to it. We wouldn't carry it with us as we leave. Lord, we know that you want us to be submitted, yielded. That our leadership, our own leadership is contingent and reliant on whether or not we're willing to follow. And so, Lord, teach us to follow right. Teach us to be faithful and to to rely on other faithful men and women to understand authority, to understand priority. God, please, would you use this sermon today to, to work on our hearts? We ask it in Christ's name, amen. that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.